Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. Welcome to the Gut Check Project. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by my other host here, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, who is our special guest today? Well, we have an amazing guest today, and this is somebody who has spent her life treating something that is very close to many people that I know, which is autism. This is Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, CEO of the Rimland Center. She owns the practice uh, Advocates for Families, which is devoted to the care of children with autism and other neurodevelopmental problems with and chronic illness. She's on the faculty of MAPS, which is Medical Academy for Pediatric Special Needs, on the board of TACA, which is the Autism Community. Wait, I'm sorry. Community in Action. Community in Action. And a medical advisor, pediatric medical advisor for the Children's Health Defense. Bottom line is all these acronyms and all this stuff doesn't do it justice. You have been a hero for autism before autism even existed. Well, that's going a little far because autism was first diagnosed in 1941, and I'm not that old. (laughs) No, I have been in it for a while. Um, I was a regular mainstream pediatrician, you know, classically trained at the University of Virginia. I was working as the medical director for the pediatrics part of a family medicine residency program located in my hometown. And in 1999, what got me interested in the whole field of autism was I was doing my regular pediatric practice, and there was this beautiful young African-American baby at a 15-month checkup. He had normal milestones, was thriving, and as was the recommendation back then, I gave him a measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and watched literally in horror because he developed this uh, mushy, runny, yellow diarrhea and then lost his developmental milestones, especially his ability to speak. And I had no idea what was going on. This was, you know, before the whole Wakefield MMR controversy had really gotten a lot of legs, although Dr. Wakefield had already published his initial paper. And I started realizing that in my practice, I was just seeing more and more kids who had developmental regressions or developmental problems. So when I was in medical school, which was in, uh, I graduated in 1980, the prevalence of autism was one in 5,000 children. And then by 1999, it was somewhere in the one in 160 to one in 200 range. And the numbers are now horrific with the most recent numbers from the CDC just a month or two ago being one in 36 children in the United States. What? One in 36 children which works out to be one in 22 male children and one in 10 children who are either black or Hispanic. So this is a what? disaster, a tsunami of autism. How do I not know that? Because it doesn't get media attention. Um, it comes out from the CDC website, but you know it's been heartbreaking to me that so many people in the government, in the CDC, the FDA, NIH, have just watched the numbers get worse and worse. And if you read the media, they will tell you it's due to overdiagnosis, which is emphatically not the case. 
um, when we've looked at this issue carefully, it's probably true that about 20% of those kids would not necessarily have been picked up before all the campaigns to increase awareness of autism. But, you know, when you look for what we call the hidden hoard, you know, if autism had already been there, we should have a bunch of autistic patients in, you know, all the nursing homes and, and uh, you know, workforce in their 50s and 60s, and they simply are not there. So, yes, one in 36 children in the United States. And here's even worse news. That's based on children born in 2012 because the CDC waits until they're eight years old to count them, and then it takes them about four years to write up the paper, and then they release it to the press. So I guarantee you those numbers would be worse if we looked at the children born two or three years ago. Just to put that ratio in perspective, you started off at one in Mm 5,000 and now one in 36. It's well over multiplying the problem in frequency by 100. Yes. That's terrifying. It's a nightmare. So um, when I watched this um, beautiful baby regress into what seemed like autism, I uh, honestly probably got a little hypomanic at the time because I was like, somebody's got to do something about this. I was like, you know, all of a sudden I noticed there are all these kids with these neurodevelopmental problems. And so I ended up um, starting a private practice solo, which is not a very um, easy thing to do. Uh, but I just felt this incredible drive to to get to the bottom of this because it didn't seem like many other people were working on it. And I got to meet a bunch of wonderful doctors that were working for with the Autism Research Institute. Um, and it turned out that Dr. Bernie Remlin, he was the guy that disproved the theory that autism was called by, caused by refrigerator mothers. So for the 60s and 70s, there was this big psychiatric movement that um, mothers of children with autism must not love them enough, must not be giving warm, caring because otherwise, why would children be socially distanced and, you know, not respond to emotional cues? Well, that was emphatically not the case, because in my experience, the mothers and fathers of children with autism are among the most caring people in the world, and they will move mountains to help their child. So I named my center in honor of Bernie Rimlin. I got to be medical director of the Autism Research Institute for about five years. And one of the things that happened there is that We got scientists and clinicians and parents together, and we had conferences and think tanks where the parents, frankly, would tell us what was happening with the kids and give us insights into what kind of treatments might be necessary to help them get better. And one of the first things they noticed was that their kids had gut problems, and that's exactly what I had seen in my patient. So that was an incredible experience because literally the parents of the children were the ones that helped the scientists and the clinicians figure out how to help their kids. So that was awesome. Wow. What were the noted associations that first leapt out to start connecting gut disturbance, gut inflammation to autism? Well, the parents would report that uh, frequently after vaccines, they noticed a child had changes in their bowel habits, Mm -hmm. chronic constipation sometimes, chronic diarrhea sometimes, and weirdly and often this alternating pattern of constipation and diarrhea. And so the kids would go back and forth. And 
Um, some parents experimented with different diets and noticed that their kids did better if they were not taking in gluten or casein. Um, gluten uh, is in wheat products. Casein is a protein found in milk. And that led us to find out a number of things. One is that as we've developed more processed foods, a lot of the preservatives in the processed foods actually disable an enzyme called DPP-4, which is known to work on helping kids and grown-ups digest gluten and casein. And so what happened is um, if the kids had damage to that enzyme, they would not break down gluten all the way to the constituent amino acids, but they would break gluten down to something called gluteomorphine, which had morphine-like characteristics. So they would say, you know, when my kid eats a big uh, chunk of bread, he gets zombie-like or he almost acts like he's drugged. And that was a fair you know, analogy. And the same thing happens with casein. If they don't break it down all the way, it goes to caseomorphine. And so they get these brain fog dulling effects um, from eating, you know, what for many people might be an okay food. I'm, I'm sorry, it's the first time I've ever heard of anything like this, and I'm kind of awestruck here. So um, DPP4 is an enzyme that can be shut down by processed foods? Right, that can be damaged by uh, processed foods, I guess I should say. And the Norwegians did a bunch of research on this, and they were able to find these abnormal caseomorphines in the urine of children with autism. And so that was a laboratory way of confirming what the parents had observed. Do we know what it is in the processed food that actually... Downregulates that. Somebody enzyme. probably does, but that's not at the tip of my brain, so I'm not sure. But the other factor about kids and autism and enzymes is that many of them have, about two thirds of them actually, also have impairments in the typical enzymes, uh, the you know the proteases that help them break down uh, protein, the disaccharidases that help them break down carbohydrates and the lipases that help them break down uh, fats. And this was shown in um, Harvard. Uh, Tim Bowie and his colleagues uh, found that when they did endoscopies on these kids and sampled, uh, you're the gastroenterologist, I guess you sample it in the duodenum or the ileum to well, we find out digestive enzymes. Yeah. In the Duodenum, ileum, wherever. We take biopsies everywhere. Yeah. But typically we wouldn't be able to see the enzymatic activity. Right. So they actually got the fluids and analyzed it for the enzymes. That was part of their study. And so many, many kids with autism actually benefit from having digestive enzymes. And it sounds so weird because here, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, I give them digestive enzymes and their autism gets better. Well, That's because there's a clear gut-brain connection, and a lot of what happens in the gut is reflected in that gut-brain axis. And so one of the rewarding things about actually going after the medical problems of kids with autism is that um, we often start with the gut, and we can sometimes get behavioral improvements, language improvements, if we uh, fix their gut. I'm just a little bit taken back because... I've always associated it with bacterial overgrowth because I get parents that bring kids to me when I can see them because I'm an adult doctor. Right. And I had one particular case is a dermatologist whose son 
um, was old enough to see me, and she had to actually retire from being a dermatologist because yeah. he was becoming combative. Right. And he was becoming big enough that it wouldn't. she couldn't just put yeah. him someplace. And she said that every time he ate, it got worse. His behavior got worse. And I treated him. Um, I said, well, let's treat his gut. And so we treated him in, in the ways that I know how, and she brought him back like three months later or two months later, and she was crying, and he was communicative. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and, you got to feel what that yeah, feels like. So I don't treat autism, Yeah. but you're saying this. This is why I'm looking at you. Like, I'm on, I'm on a podcast here, and I'm taking notes like crazy. Yeah. I'm like, why don't I know this? And well, I'm let, a little let, bit. Um, so anyways, I he did amazing. Well, if I could follow up with a couple of things that might have been going on with him. So um, we know that children with autism have different gut flora from other so-called neurotypical children, the biggest thing we find is that they have a lack of gut diversity. So instead of having a lot of the really good guys, they have not so many good guys and more um, of the pathogenic bacteria. Sometimes, dysbiosis. Yeah, dysbiosis, um, which when I first mentioned it at my university uh, many decades ago, they said no such thing you know, ever <laughs> exists. But <laughs> okay. um, they also have more bad uh, so-called pathogenic bacteria, specifically Clostridia. So Clostridia, um, more different strains in higher amounts in kids with autism compared to neurotypical kids. So sometimes you can treat them with um, uh, mabendazole, flagyl, and that will bring down the Clostridia mm-hmm. and they'll get some improvements, which sadly are usually temporary until you really fix the whole thing. Um, or you can use Saccharomyces boulardii, which is like a good yeast that overcrowds bad yeast out, but it also uh, not only increases secretory IgA, which keeps them from being sick as much, but it helps uh, guard against the clostridia toxin taking up in their gut. Now, another thing that could be happening with when he eats, he gets worse, is Many kids with autism have what's called uh, phenyl sulfur transferase deficiency. This is an enzyme in the detox pathways, and it takes care of high phenol foods, and it takes care of high salicylate foods. So some parents would say, you know, he just loves bananas, but whenever he gets bananas, he goes berserk. And bananas are one of the high phenol foods that can cause behavioral changes because they're not breaking it down appropriately. High phenol foods and what was the other one? Um, high phenol foods Salicylate. and Salicylate. salicylates. Can yeah. You, uh, um, what did, uh, the high phenol food? That is a term we deal in the world of polyphenols. So I refer to phenolic compounds. Well, polyphenols are great. You know, they are um, you know richly colored. They are found in richly colored foods, and you want to do that. But high phenol foods that tend to cause trouble for the kids with autism are bananas, red cherries, some red apples, not so much green apples. And you can actually give them a no phenol enzyme to help them break it down. Can you differentiate phenol from polyphenol or phenolic compounds is what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. Um, So polyphenols are the healthy stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, they have a lot of good nutrition in them that's going to typically help the kids with autism. The just high phenolic, high phenol compound foods, um, which you can look up what the high phenol foods are, 
um, those are the ones that seem to have this gut-brain connection and cause kids to go because kind of Because there's a berserk. phenol sulfur transferase deficiency. Yeah, uh, PST is the, uh, the um, shortcut for that. But yeah, and Does that's that, in the detoxification pathways. I'm, I so apologize that I'm hijacking my own podcast because I wanted to talk to you <laughs> that's about okay. all this. But that's you okay. are literally blowing my mind because I have so many patients that I say I can't help, but this is all new stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you this. can help them. So um, the, when we think about these different enzymes, you can deplete the enzyme by overconsumption of certain things. For instance, I can take somebody and make them lactose intolerant by giving them too much. Is, Milk, too yeah. Much, yeah. yeah. Is, is that the same thing for phenol sulfur transferase? In other words, I, overwhelm, I, overwhelm I, it. it. It may be overwhelming the enzyme, but because of... Whatever genetic predisposition may exist in some kids with autism, they typically just don't have a very good functioning PST. You know, not all the time, but for some kids. And when you mentioned this woman saying he gets worse when he eats, that's one of the things I thought about. The other thing I want to mention, I'll continue to blow your mind if you'll allow me, is um, if he's eating a lot of high sugar and uh, high simple carbohydrate foods, he might actually be getting a yeast overgrowth in his gut. Sure. And yeast can ferment, ferment in the gut. So, you know, anybody that's been in a bar knows that, you know, some kids, people, when they have a bunch of beers, they get, they're an aggressive drunk. Other people are like a happy drunk. And kids with autism who have a problem with yeast are essentially fermenting yeast in their, um, in their gut. And they can get hyperactive. Sometimes they get this uh, one weird symptom of laughing maniacally in the middle of the night. Um, sometimes they get really red cheeks and red ears. Sometimes they just crave sugar because, you know, the yeast likes sugar because that makes them leave. And the yeast put out metabolic byproducts that make the child crave sugar so they can continue to live happily in their gut. So things I would think about for kids get worse with eating is... Um, is it a digestive impair, enzyme impairment? Is it yeast? Um, yeah, it, it, we, you just do, have to figure it out. Yeah, and not to put you on the spot, and not to put you on the spot that a gastroenterologist is asking a pediatrician to explain the pathophysiology of pancreatic deficiency, but do we know why autistic children have a pancreatic insufficiency? You know, somebody probably has looked into that, but I don't know the answer to the why question. Um, I, I would suspect um, because w that it may be due to chronic inflammation because kids with autism have chronic inflammation of their brains. They often have chronic inflammation in their gut. And I don't see why the pancreas should be a sanctuary against inflammation. So it may be related to that. But well um, there are a couple of pediatric gastroenterologists who probably know more about that than I do. I would like to mention the gut inflammation, though, because this is really kind of interesting um, you may recall that Andy Wakefield, who was a British gastroenterologist, caused a big brouhaha about MMR vaccine and autism. This was like in the early 2000s when I was just getting into this. And all he did was write a paper about 12 cases from his hospital and reported that the parents thought that their children's GI problem started after MMR. And in the paper, he clearly said, you know, we're not claiming that this is a causal association, but it does seem like a fruitful area for more research. And in our experience, our endoscopies in our patients has confirmed what he reported, which is that a lot of these kids have 
lymphoid nodular hyperplasia, commonly in the ilium, or a lot of um, of uh, inflammation, especially in the ilium, but it can be in other parts of uh, the small or large intestine, and that that inflammation may in some kids actually lead them to do behaviors that are really pain behaviors and not misbehaving. So let's just imagine for a moment you're a young kid with autism and you have a stomachache every day of your life and nobody can understand you because you don't have language. And at some point you're going to get frustrated and angry and potentially violent. So one of the things that's sort of classic for kids with autism is for them to come in and, for example, lean their belly over the side of this sofa because putting pressure on their belly actually helps their pain. And so we encourage parents, if they see their children doing that, to think about the possibility that they've got chronic stomach aches. So so, just to clarify that right there, the small intestine, this makes total sense, the small intestine and the colon, they do not have pain receptors. They have stretch receptors. mm -hmm. So when they get stretched it causes pain. So when somebody puts pressure on it to decrease it, that tells me it's not an inflammatory aspect. It's a distension thing. So if your child is doing that, I've never asked that. Yeah, so distension is definitely an issue, but if you do look endoscopically, you will see signs of inflammation. And sometimes they have just aphthous ulcers all the way through, but there was a guy in Italy gosh, what was his name? He was wonderful, who did a pill cam series on kids with autism. So they got a a camera that went in a very small pill and had the kids swallow it, and they took thousands of pictures, and they found that there were discrete areas of inflammation in a number of the kids with autism. So when we treated the inflammation with something as simple as omega-3s and ibuprofen or another anti-inflammatory that doesn't have GI side effects or put them on like uh, medicines like Pintasa or steroids, if the inflammation got better, often these pain behaviors got better, they quit leaning over the sofa, and they quit having outbursts. Mm. Wakefield was his name? Wakefield was the British guy. I'm blanking on the wonderful gastroenterologist from Italy um, who did the pill cam studies. Yeah. Wow, I am got a lot of homework to do, and I'm immediately, this is not at all where I thought this was going to go, and I'm just completely humbled. Um, wow. Well, early 2000s, you're using the information that you've learned from Wakefield, or at least what he's saying mm-hmm. might be right. linked. And it seemed to make sense sure. with what I saw in my patient. So yeah. then as you are taking his information and say, well, at least anecdotally, it's matching for my practice, what was it like when you began to talk to other people about what you were experiencing with your patients? So um, I started going to the Autism Research Institute think tanks and conferences, and uh, they were amazing because the researchers there, it wasn't just the gut. I'll give you sort of the five main areas we work in. Uh, Gut, either inflammation or digestive enzymes insufficiency was a huge piece of it. You know, the gut is the seat of your immune system, Um, That's how we uh, first learned to be tolerant or intolerant of things in our world. So a lot of the kids also had um, immune dysregulation with a dysregulation between Th1 immunity, the kind that helps you fight, you know, uh, bacteria and funguses and viruses, and Th2 immunity, which 
tries to guard you against autoimmunity and allergy. So a lot of these kids had a lot of allergies and got, had a lot of infections. And so they got a lot of antibiotics, which fed back to make their gut flora worse. And it ended up being a huge vicious cycle. Clarify that really quick. So TH2, they have less? They, they, have, uh, they tend toward more TH2, which is autoimmunity and allergy, and less TH1, which is competence to fight infections. That would explain the ulcers. Yes. Exactly, because our TH2 people are our Crohn's people. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, so the web gets more complicated. And then the other thing we found that was so extraordinary, and uh, Dr. Jill James wrote about this in 2004, is that about 85% of kids with autism have abnormalities in their methylation biochemistry. And methylation is this very basic biochemical crossroads. If you don't do methylation well, you don't make your neurotransmitters right, you don't turn your genes on and off right, you don't do detoxification pathways well because methylation is a precursor to glutathione, which is like your gateway to detox. And so we started finding that with kids with autism, if we replaced um, methylfolate and methylcobalamin, that a significant number of them improved their methylation markers in the lab. But even more importantly, when we did uh, Vineland like activities of daily living for a kid scales, they improve their activities of daily living um, because that's such a crucial piece of their biochemistry. Now, another thing that affects the gut, since this is a gut uh, podcast, is mitochondrial function. So for your listeners, mitochondria are like the powerhouses of the cell. Um, They are very easily disrupted by all kinds of things. Heavy metals are bad for mitochondria, Viruses and bacteria are bad for mitochondria. Even uh, salinity, which if the cell is a little bit too salty or not salty enough, the mitochondria don't do as well. Or if they're too acid or too basic, mitochondria don't do as well. So for as important as they are, they're a little bit finicky about their environments. And we have come to find that maybe as many as 85% of kids with autism have problems with mitochondria. So we think about that when we have a clinical picture where they have constipation because mitochondria are important for peristalsis to help you move your food through your gut. We think about mitochondria whenever the kid seems to have a lot of brain fog because, you know, your brain uses a huge amount of energy. And if that runs out, they tend to only have a 10 or 12 minute attention span. And we think about it for the kids that are floppy and don't have good motor skills. So it can be very rewarding to identify mitochondrial dysfunction and give the mitochondria the nutrients and the um, basic um, building blocks that they need to make ATP, which is the currency for energy. So we give things like coenzyme Q10, vitamin C, certain B vitamins, especially riboflavin and niacin, um, make sure that they're well oxygenated and well hydrated. And so sometimes you fix their mitochondria and their autism symptoms get better. So I hope you're getting the picture here that autism is not a psychiatric disease that's just all in their head. Um, There are lots of medical issues associated with it that we need to pay attention to. I'm so sorry. Um, Methylene blue, have you, do you look at You know, methylene blue came, I learned more about methylene blue once COVID came. Um, And so I haven't honestly used it in 
a lot of my patients with autism. But theoretically, it should work well because methylene blue targets the mitochondria, mm-hmm. and that's something that we should probably uh, look at and do in them. We probably need to be a little careful in kids um, and check them for G6PD deficiency because those kids don't do as well with methylene blue. And I think that's a, uh, and we are starting to use it at MAPS where I mentioned um, I'm on the faculty at the last conference, was, which was just about a month ago. Uh, we had a session on using methylene blue in our patients. So I think it's a very promising area we ought to look into. Thank you. Your uh, one couple last questions, and I know that you have to go, but you, you do work with the uh, Children's Health Defense. Yes. And y'all have a, an amazing database. I know that Probably autism took you there to work with them. Is that correct? Um, Yeah, autism, because you cannot have a genetic epidemic that happens in a couple of decades. So clearly there has to be an environmental component. And RFK Jr. and the people at Children's Health Defense are the ones that are the leaders in our country for looking critically at environmental influences. And so... In autism, some of the environmental influences that seem to cause trouble for our kids, glyphosate. Um, glyphosate is in Roundup, and it was pushed through for approval, distribution, whatever, um, because one of the sticking points was a certain pathway that gets disabled, and they were like, oh, well, that's not a problem because we don't have that pathway. Well, our gut bacteria do have that pathway. And so by disabling that, we were adversely affecting our gut flora, which as we've talked about, kids with autism often have a lot of gut dysbiosis. So glyphosate is one issue that Mm -hmm. they look at. Another issue is the issue of vaccines. And this is something that I've had to do a really deep dive on in the last um, couple of decades because as I say, observationally, my patient deteriorated after a vaccine that we then found out, um, yes, is associated with autism in some kids who have certain genetic predispositions and that the risk for black children is higher than for white children, Caucasian children. And so um, looking at the issue of vaccines, it's not just MMR. um, It has to do with some of the adjuvants in the vaccines right now. Uh, when we originally started Children's Health Defense, we were concerned about mercury. Mm-hmm. And that was taken out of most but not all childhood vaccines. People think it's totally gone. It's actually still in some flu vaccines. And mercury is a known neurotoxin. And the problem with heavy metals is that the amount that might be too much for your child to handle, your child might be able to handle that. And so the the... The uh, synergy also plays a role. If you're being exposed to um, mercury at the same time you're exposed to lead, that can be worse than either one individually. Now we have more aluminum in the vaccines, and um, there's some interesting work that suggests that if you follow the regular CDC-recommended infant vaccine schedule, you are intermittently putting the kids in and out of acute aluminum toxicity and that they are never really returning to a good baseline. So they have some chronic aluminum toxicity. And my favorite um, person to read about aluminum is Chris Exley, who is this wonderful British scientist. He has uh, published more about aluminum than um, almost anybody in the world. And he wrote this great book for your lay audience. It's called, Imag- called Imagine You're an Aluminum Atom. And he goes through the whole thing about how 
you know, aluminum does exist in our environment, but it's not meant to be injected. And he takes you through a lot of the physiology of how that can be harmful. Um, the other thing Children's Health Defense is very worried about is that this generation of children has been more exposed to EMF than any other prior generation. And we're starting to find out that certain people don't tolerate EMF exposures as well as other people. Mm -hmm. Again, what it is about their genetics, I don't really know yet, but it certainly seems to be the case. So they take on all kinds of environmental causes, the bad food, you know, big food with all the preservatives, you know, the Skittles that have these horrible dyes in them. And oddly enough, have been used in kids with autism to give them positive reinforcement for doing well during their applied behavioral analysis session. So we're, you know, doing a behavioral therapy for kids while we're feeding them something that's making them unhealthy. So CHD, following RFK Jr.'s lead, he is so fearless about going after corporate greed and corporate malfeasance. He spent 35 years as a uh, lawyer going after big corporations and suing them for, you know, dumping their toxins into the rivers. And so he somehow is not afraid of them and sets such a good example. So you can read about all kinds of environmental concerns on the CHD website. And I really admire a lot of the people that I work with there for um, their, uh, their undying devotion to try to save this generation of kids. 54% of our kids now have at least one chronic disease, and it's predicted that by 2025, which is only two years away, that could go as high as 80%. So in pediatrics, we're no longer just treating, you know, earaches and coughs and colds. We're treating chronic illness like, you know, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes in little kids now, and things like chronic allergies and chronic asthma and inflammatory bowel disease and the whole shebang. So... Yeah, I'm glad CHD is out there and um, we, you know, get a lot of flack from big pharma and traditional medicine, but I think we get that flack because we're pointing out a lot of inconvenient truths. Did you, and last question for me, do you feel like that your experience with CHD leading up to now coming all the way through COVID prepared you for the scrutiny as you began to pursue what you would see as a better solution? Yeah, so, you know, FLCCC is another organization under fire. It seems like all the people I think are really smart and wonderful <laughs> are the ones that are like the red flags to be taken down. Um, you know, I know way too many personal friends who have had their licenses attacked, their medical licenses. So, um, you know, I'm really grateful to my parents because they told me that if you do what you think is right, there may be a cost in the short run, but that you still have to do it. And so I've had this um, this inner drive to try to help as many children as I can. You know, some of them I help directly by being their doctor, but I do love to teach. And so what I hope is that by lecturing at conferences and writing papers and doing research, that my... Um, influence will go beyond just the patients in my practice. And that if I can teach other doctors to do some of the things to basically take away what's harming our children and then giving them what they need to heal, that that's a life's work I can be pretty happy about at the end. And so we keep on going. And um, I the hill I'm going to die on is 
doing everything physically, emotionally possible to keep the world from giving COVID vaccines to children who are not at great risk of having bad outcomes from COVID itself, that they're at an extremely higher risk from getting a vaccine that contains spike proteins and lipid nanoparticles that are going to go to their brain at a time when their brain is still developing and still forming. So if anybody out there who's listening to this has any um, desire to help, um, this is going to be a political issue, unfortunately, so I would encourage you to contact your legislators and let them know that you're concerned about the tendency for them to want to mandate this and put it on school schedules and make it necessary for uh, school attendance because the uh, list of side effects, even if you look at the original trials from the drug manufacturers critically, and I have done this, even if you look at their data, it's very bad for kids. So I'll be campaigning hard to try to turn that around, even though uh, the American Community for Immunization Practices has just recommended it for every kid down to six months every year. That would be 75 shots for a woman who's a baby now, uh, potentially. I would like to say something. Um, First of all, I had this full intent in doing this podcast and making it all about your history of your fighting for autism and then sort of making the analogy to what's going on now. And I want to thank you very much for humbling me immediately and teaching me about things that I need to learn and look at. It, this is, yes, we're dealing with this. We're at the FLCCC, but I am somewhat embarrassed because I have friends that have autistic kids and I have not discussed this and I'm excited and I have hope that I can look at this and go back and go, I met Dr. Mumper who taught me things that I have not heard yet. And yeah, I did go a little off the rails, I realize, uh, now that we're reflecting back on it. But I'll do another podcast and we can do the whole I journey thing. I absolutely loved it because yeah. I had my own agenda and you just completely knocked me on my heels and humbled me and thank you. Oh, I want to yeah. thank you so much for coming on because I'm going to call up and we're going to help some people in the immediate term. And we're definitely going to help some people in the long term by getting in front of this whole vaccine, the COVID vaccine and all this other stuff. But, uh, wow, I'm super impressed that you came here. and um, Yeah. This well, it was is really fun. Learning I enjoyed time. talking with you guys. What's the best way for people to connect with you? Um, it's a little difficult right now, honestly, because I just had to give up my pediatric practice um, because I couldn't find anybody to help me through the winter when one of my nurse practitioners left. Mm-hmm. So I would have said before, call my office, but um, the, the, nobody's answering my phone now. So I, um, through the FLCCC, they can read a lot of my recommendations for children. They can also go to the Children's Health Defense website and read a lot of that information there. Um, At some point, I'm going to reorganize and have a better way to contact me. Um, I do hesitate to give out my cell phone number or my email address to however many uh, people are out there listening. I apologize, but I get overwhelmed. Just go ahead and give out Eric's. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a good plan. Let's do I'll that. Yeah, let's do that. You can text me. Uh, 
But um, stay tuned because I'll be working both very hard for FLCCC and Children's Health Defense. So a lot of what I think is going to show up in those two venues. Fantastic. Well, everyone, uh, all of those links that she mentioned will be in the show notes. Feel free to click on those. Let us know if you have any other questions. We can send them to uh, Dr. Mumper. Liz, thank you all so much. Yeah. Please be sure to like and share. We will see you all next time. This is time. one of those times where I'm really glad we have a podcast because I'm learning. Absolutely. This concludes the free portion of the Gut Check Project. For full access to the raw interviews, just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP Raw Circle and use code HERO for a free month, plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends, and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check Project.